G'day everybody, welcome to Wombat Radio. Today we're in Erskineville. Yes. And we're chatting with, mate, I always call you Pascal. Yeah. But it's hard to find you on the internet. <laughs> Do you want to maybe introduce yourself a little bit? Um, my name is Pascal D'Antos Berry. D'Antos. D'Antos Berry. Um, and unless you're spelling my name wrong, you should find me. <laughs> well, I don't know which name to search for. This is it. I've done a few different variations. I only found out last year when I went to the Philippines for the first time that vowels next to each other are split. Yes. In the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that before, so I'm still learning. <laughs> um, and who are you, Pascal? I am... Ooh, that's a lovely question. <laughs> um, I am... Well, currently, I suppose... Mm. Um, my identity would be a, um, the program coordinator of Blacktown Arts, but I suppose that's not who I am in totality. Mm-hmm. Um, I am also a writer for performance, um, with a background on both performance and visual arts. Um, who I am, if we need to sort of culturally talk about who I am. Well, you know, white people don't have to, but if you're not white, that yeah, seems well, to be part know, of the conversation, you know, right? It, I, have to, I have to qualify everything <laughs> with that. Um, yeah. And in the 90s, you know, like it was always such a, you know, with a, with a, through the lens of, um, you know, um, identity politics, we used to always say to assert our presence in the landscape that we were, you know, whatever other you were and slash Australian. So Filipino-Australian writer was always my tagline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and it but, is um, now, it's not anymore. Oh, look, I, I, tend to sort of, I tend to leave it. I don't think it is as important, mainly because I feel the conversation has been progressed. But I think, yeah, I turn it on and off, yeah. depending where I am. Is it... Could it have, I'm just stabbing in the dark here, that perhaps that that, that type of other is not as othered as other others? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, um, I certainly feel like I exist a lot more than a lot of my friends who have just arrived here in the last right, few years, right. but particularly asylum seekers who are probably the most invisible. Yeah, yeah, and almost expected mm. to maintain their... Invisibility, <laughs> uh, appreciation mm. for the good deed that's been done to them. That's right. Yeah, right. Uh, did we work out who you were? Um, I don't know. Like, I probably. I, um, You're still working it. I'm out. still working it. Uh, <laughs> I think I probably won't work out who I am until I'm about seventy-five. Okay, and then but did we, maybe we can do another podcast oh, around that. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we? Shall we do it? Program it. Book in a time, maybe. <laughs> Um, and when I first met you, it was in the role of dramaturg. Yes. For dance. Yes. So, (laughs) do you get to work with dance a lot? I look, it's something I really miss, I have to say. And I do, I, um, I, I work with a couple of dancers. Um, I've been, or I've been working with a couple of dancers in the last couple of years. And a lot of times it's really about finding the opportunity to, be in the right project or, or just something that I have, I'm able to, you know, delegate some time to. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to, and you know, if, 
if Ruth Osborne is listening, I really wanted to keep working with QLT for, you know, for the longest time. Um, but it just, it just got to a point where it was very difficult to, um, to do the Playhouse projects. Um, because of the timing, you know, it's everyone's kind of, um, busy period, but I really miss working with Akila to kids, as I still call them, even though most, most of them have turned into incredible, um, dance yeah, makers. they're like half the industry now. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I really miss, I really miss that kind of, that, that floor time, um, the sort of seeing, uh, particularly the, the way, um, my experience within the Australian Choreographic Centre, which which was about really looking at so many dance makers and their practice, and and looking at all these very um, different processes of working, mm-hmm. methodologies of working, the training of you know choreographers was always really interesting in terms of how they begin work. Um, I miss, I really miss it, but you know, I'm still young. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? So I only hear people talk about on the floor time mm. when their practice is not natively on the floor. Mm. So do you want to talk about your not on the floor practice? <laughs> um, my not on the floor practice is possibly, you know, what is expected of me within the most traditional sense of writing. I think as a writer and um, even as a person who's structuring works, I mm. think a lot of the time that you do spend in a project is around research, mm. around thinking. As a writer, I definitely feel like um, so much of my process would be misconstrued as procrastinating. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what, yeah, it's one of the joys of being an artist. I found myself yesterday watching like um, f- food processing factories, machinery, and this like one machine that can process hundreds of eggs a minute or something and you're like okay one day this is going to be imperative information <laughs> but it's so true i don't know yet it's so true i find the um the whole process of observation regarded you know regardless what it is whether it's about watching a documentary or yeah. um or watching people or even just visiting you know a place that you haven't visited for a very long time um, and just watching things transpire. Like I, you know, one of the things I think that's always been such an important part of my process as an artist is to just be in a kind of dream state or a thinking, thinking state. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, like you, you know, you, it would be very hard. You'd be very hard pressed to justify that in a grant application, but it's such an important part of the process to be able to actually just free form um, in terms of what allowing your brain to just completely go through the process of imagination and, um, and, and that very sort of relaxed state of a, a kind of, it's sort of, it's akin to stream of consciousness writing, you know, whereas, you know, in stream of consciousness writing, you're physically doing it. But when you go through that meditation and meditation around work, Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing except for you're not enacting anything you're just hoping that your mind is going to absorb all that information at some point um, but I'm sure so many people work within that way yeah and I always have I always felt like even as a child I've always had room to just veg out stare out 
and I was a very easy child to amuse because everything was happening in my brain. Um, <laughs> and I still use that process, I think. Like, so much of my process is really about thinking. Mm. I want to know, recently I did a workshop that was like a way to co-opt others to help me work out my own question, <laughs> which was like, what is that feeling that we are relying on, that sense, like we rely on our sense of balance to balance, and what is the sense that we rely on to tell us when something is something, mm. or it's nothing, in process, in yeah, writing, yeah. as ideas float up, you're like, you always are watching ideas delivered to you, because mm. we don't think, our brain just thinks, and then ideas happen, and then you're like, nah, 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 yes, yeah. nah, nah, and then what is, like, what is that? <laughs> What is that thing? How this conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, and, but then when you're talking about like professional level imagining, mm. like dedicated time. Look, it's like you know. I think we talked about the balance between instinct and training. I think one one thing, you know, at, you know, when you when you're a child and you're going through these kind of moments of inspiration and moments of you know what you believe is genius when you're five years old. <laughs> Um, you know, there was, there's something really kind of, I mean, you know, the, the glee of discovering ideas and the glee of, of discovering images is something that I feel you don't really know how to discipline until you're able to find that particular training and, and training in that widest kind of context, yeah, yeah. you know, whether, Learning, not education, yeah, not education. Yeah. Um, and so once you sort of hone that sense of recognition of what what that thing is that propels your instinct to, to gravitate towards an image or an idea or um, or, or, or even kind of um, ah, you know like a philosophical kind of shift mm. um, it becomes much more of a discipline because you're you're able to then recognize the patterns um, that you're following to be able to create a work from a small kernel of an idea or an image or you know so and I find it's interesting actually some of the most um, exciting artists I've ever worked with as a, as a dramaturg I've always been inspired by where ideas have come from um, and, and often, particularly within dance, often ideas are propelled by the inanimate, which is, you know, which, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, which makes a lot thing. of sense when you yeah. start to sort of unpack what it is and, you know, and, and space, you know, like I love dancers and choreographers who are able to, um, recognize how much space becomes um, an influence or an inspiration for, for a work, you know, and, and often the absence of a body in space, which is, which is you know, really beautiful. There's, have you seen this movie called In the Mood for Love? Mm. It's very slow. <laughs> By today's standards, it's slow, yeah. but it, it, it maintains a uh, what's the word it still maintain it's still worth being with it yeah like it's not slow because it's empty yeah it's slow because there it's it's allowing space for you 
to be with it, yeah. and viewing it. And it's a very choreographic film, I think. You know, that, yeah, that's, that's why I love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the small dancers and and you know, yeah. in terms of their interaction, the two, the two bodies in on the screen, I think is such an important um, aspect of the work. And I find, you know, even, you know, Lab Diaz, which is even smaller, I mean, which is even slower, and I don't know if you know his films, but, you know, an action can transpire over 30 minutes. Mm. Um, and it's really kind of a, you know, it really redefines really slow cinema and then, you know, in the Southeast Asian kind of context, um, because you're seeing the body in relation to the movement of objects or, you know, or, you know, or, or the, the movement of the clouds. And so it's, it's even so much grander in scope because you're, you know, because I think what Love Diaz does really well is that he, he manages to, to, I suppose, view the human body as just another object in space, which is, you know, mm. Which is a, <laughs> which is a grand statement when you think about the kind of um, heaviness of his works. Um, I wonder about what what it is that you think you're doing is doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that is such a Matt Cornell question. Yeah, um. but I don't always bring it out, but I feel like you can handle it. All right. Look, I, um, I'm so... I like this question a lot because I think often what you do as a dramaturg is try to problematize what it is that you think you're doing. So, so you know, like often a work says all these really beautiful grand things within the first artistic rationale you know you write that two paragraphs you know that you have to write for the producers or else for your artistic team and then my job is really to sort of sit outside that and go is that really what you're doing <laughs> so so often i do i do clock myself when i enter into into projects and increasingly for my role as you know as a as a you know, as, as as a program coordinator for Blacktown, um, it's really also important for me to look at how the thematics of a particular um, work and what we say about it is actually doing what it says it's doing. Um, yeah, or it's learnt from its process. Yeah, it needs to do something else. Yeah. But you need, yeah. But you need to know, like, what, what is the thing you're doing, doing, and should yeah. you keep doing it? I look, you know, and for me, you know, to answer your question, for me, it's always, you know, like I, I have, I was able to sort of link my obsession in the last couple, you know, of the last decade, a couple of years ago, when I was going through, you know, my, you know, the, the I suppose my body of work as well as. The body of work that I've done with other people. Are you old enough to go through your body of work, Pascal? I'm nearly fifty. Really, <laughs> forty-five. Wow. Um, so that's not nearly fifty. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay. And so you know, so I, it's and and when I say body of work, I just mean you know like a body of of explorations and including you know like I never I never prefer preference, you know. Uh, a whole project to a small sketch 
you know, on a you know, yeah, on a brown piece of paper from the bottle oak, yeah. you know, but I think there are a lot of those. Pieces <laughs> of but, you know, I used to work in a bottle oak, so oh, I was able right. to... Okay, so they really should give you the bottle in the bag and have one of those little Ikea pencils on the side yeah, of the bag. That's right. Because um, everyone should be searching while they unwind. But, you know, I think, um, I think there's been such a recurring theme um in 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 the things that interest me which is i suppose i'm very conscious about this sense of erasure of culture um and there were and and being i suppose from a culture that has had waves of um attempts at erasure um in terms you know in terms of colonial history as well as you know increasingly within contemporary philippines um, right. Self erasure. <laughs> that, yeah, I was going to bring that up. That you know, like Japan and Spain and America, and then like this internal self. Oh, and then you know the waves of dictatorships and. Of course, um, it was always trying to just change everybody's memory of the past. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's a you know it's 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 one of the things that I was really conscious of. You know, going to you know when I was growing up in the Philippines, first ten years of my life. Um, I was, I was always in, in, I grew up in Cebu, which is central Philippines. And then we spent over all of our holidays in the island of Samar or Leyte, which, you know, where my parents came from. Um, but, you know, when we go to Samar, you know, Samar was one of the most interesting places historically in the Philippines because there's, um, you know, because you could still find remnants of, of the wars, for example, like you'd still find rockets from the World War Two, um, and, you know, remnants of kamikaze pilots and all those, you know, all those, all those things that you would discover as a child going through, you know, the forest or, you know, or, or, or the coconut fields. Um, so for, for me growing up being so, um, connected to my history through, objects whether they were cultural or whether they were the devastation of of place um and also because so many of the stories that i was told as a child were still first person stories of people actually experiencing world war ii you know and and then at the time people who were um going through i suppose all the kind of difficult situations um that a dictatorship which was the Marcus dictatorship of the 70s and the 80s. You know, those stories were really kind of alive and real. And, you know, so so coming to Australia, you know, at, at 11 years old and seeing that other layer of colonial history, um, uh, you know, and understanding what was kind of go- going on because you you have a reflection or you have an understanding of colonial history through your own context. Mm. So arriving in, you know, in a country town that is, that was, you know, that had a massive population of Aboriginal people. Where was that? Um, in Sejuna in South Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being surrounded by First Nations people who still spoke language, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you would have had that experience growing yeah. up in Darwin. Oh, I thought everyone um, had that experience. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is that, you know, you don't realise that people, not everyone has that experience until you go to uni and you... Yeah, and you realise that people are so far away from that, you know, from that context. But, you know, like for me, 
to be, you know, to be growing up in a country town that was, you know, that was only a few k's away from two missions. Um, we still witnessed the mission culture of the, you know, that was, you know, we were still, we were just coming to the end of that in the, in the eighties, but it was still there. Um, so I've always been conscious about this whole idea and, you know, just, this is a long, long kind of story to get back to the point, which is, I've always been very conscious about this idea of erasure and, you know, and things fading. And so I think a lot of my works tend to look at, um, you know what, you know what Deb Pollard and I used to talk about in the first work that we did together, um, The Folding Wife, which is the ravages of history, this, this idea that you're constantly kind of walking through the ravages, um, whether or not you're conscious of it, but you are, you know. Um, so when I think about what I think I am doing, you know, when I think about... <laughs> what it is that I'm doing yeah. and whether or not it is the thing I'm thinking about I'm doing. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it's multiple kind of angles, I suppose, because I really think I'm trying to sort of decolonize myself, mm. really. But I think a lot of artists are trying to do that from, you know, from, you know, from, you know, artists particularly who believe they're the other. Um, and are you, are you, when you think about that, are you thinking about it as a Filipino, like those waves of colonizing that have impacted then the land that you were raised on and the people you were raised by? Or are you thinking about it now in the Australian context? I think I'm looking at it at all, in all contexts. I think essentially we're all part of really significant constructs um and you know working for an institution you know i i need to sort of problematize that too within the whole idea of what decolonizing is you know like if i'm trying to decolonize my own structures that that bind me to what it is to be a filipino what it is to be a filipino australian um i need to sort of problematize the way i work and the methodologies um that I impose on other people. Um, so, so you know, so I, as you know, I'm always up for a conversation. I think it's, I, I think the beauty about working within the arts is that we keep ourselves alive in, um, in, in the kind of dynamic nature of our conversations. And, you know, I think we're always trying to sort of push, um, push the boundaries of where we can go, whether we're talking about curatorially or whether we're talking about where we are in the edge of form or where we are in terms of the evolution of our forms, you know. Um, I wonder that about <clears throat> cultural construct as well, because if our jobs are to be, to hold ourselves to a high standard of consideration mm. and awareness about the cultural constructs we're operating within and perpetuating, enough that we make choices about which ones to keep and which ones to discard or challenge or problematize, then the question becomes uh, on what basis do we make the decisions like institutionalization is also like has a culture. Mm. And so we want to challenge those cultures, but some of the things about them, like workers unions, we want to perpetuate mm or we don't want to perpetuate, like, this is the, at 
it's that we can't ever leave culture. So any culture we're making space for, unless there is suddenly more space, it seems like <laughs> it's a zero sum situation yeah. where like the scales tip, they don't just both rise. Mm. And so I wonder about that when you're talking about thinking about erasure of culture, that mm. we're quite literally deciding which cultures to erase rather mm. than just going along with what is the default setting on which mm. cultures to erase. Because I think we're, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit. I think yeah. we're always trying to write what was wrong. And I think essentially, you know, like, uh, we, you know, the pendulums, you know, sways constantly within, yeah. you know, within the context of political left or right, you know, um, so essentially, you know, like you have to, I almost feel like, um, that whole kind of adage in performance or a dramatic, you know, dramatic theory of, of, you know, being in the moment. I think it's really important to be able to be always sort of checking where we're at in terms of where we're at with systems, mm -hmm. for example. Um, because the minute you, we believe that culture, um, is what is 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 to be followed because it's what what is being prescribed. It becomes a very dangerous space. I think it, everything has to be up for negotiations always because you know, like particularly when we talk about terminologies, you know, terminologies that we found totally acceptable ten years ago become offensive absolutely within a contemporary context. So yeah. I always feel like we always have to be. I mean, language is is actually the the, the most um, fucked up contract <laughs> out of all of them, like, you know. Ultimately, um, it's it's argument based. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's a big, and it's because we need to define a time, a place, a movement, mm. um, and then <laughs> we spend another ten years trying to unshackle ourselves from what we just defined. You know, um, I remember, God, nearly twenty years ago, and started, and people started to talk about. Um, you know, Martin Crimp's work is, you know, he's a British playwright as post-human. And, and there's just these really kind of smarmy, <laughs> smarmy terminologies that really kind of, um, I don't know, it, it, it hits my kind of um, anger points, you know, <laughs> because it's just these, you know, it's just a bunch of us wankers talking about... <laughs> You know, talking about how to define our time, and then you know, like it's, and then I remember, you know, another. Well, maybe I shouldn't mention it here, but you know, like it's this. You know, there's also this this kind of fixation for um, the meaningless, as though we, you know, as though we never had the data movement. Um, so you know, it's those things. Like we're always constantly kind of you know, entering and exiting, mm. um, frameworks that we create for ourselves and then need to try to break out of. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, the easiest way to feel like you're part of a community is to get on board with the community. Sentiment. <laughs> yes. yes. And I remember sharing this thing yesterday, free sharing on socials about that there were with international women's day. Yeah. There was, uh, small but loud enough um group of fools <laughs> that i'll call out who were like what about international men's day oh god and what they didn't realize is that there is one yeah. and i didn't realize that there is one and it's on november 19th 
And it's six pillars of basically don't be shit. Yeah. And don't make other men be shit. Yeah. And if you need to make a safe space for men, possibly from other men, yeah. then stand up and be the better man. Right? <laughs> it's all like, so it does, even, even um, just the agreeance with the gripe without the idea of thinking that maybe you don't have a, a leg to stand on to make that gripe because that space is already there and already exists and you actually just don't usually need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, that idea is like... The thing that it does, though, is reinforce who's on your side. Mm. So you always feel like you're part of a team or a group. Yeah. And that is... Um, it's a shame that it's that that's what we need to function that that is functioning as being on the same same side as someone not like oh we live in the same area and we all have to eat food and we all have to shit and we all have to sleep <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that's enough yeah that actually we can meet that conversation yes i wonder about um your efforts for others versus your efforts for sustaining Mm. so I would say a curatorial or producer's position is about pushing back against all institutional frameworks so that there is space for the artist you're almost an insulator and you go in to like it's you that tells the person that has to write the checks like no this person needs to be paid more Mm. it shouldn't be the artist's job to switch out of the mode of imagination Mm. and into the mode of litigation Mm. because those modes I don't think work well together so then I wonder when how do you make how do you insulate your imagination self (laughs) or when does that happen I look I think there there has to be a clear line between you know like I, I, I take seriously the you know the literal meaning of you know being a curator which is you know curar which is to care um, so you know, I've, I think, I think essentially what that also means is that you need to know how to separate how you're, when you're caring for other people and when you're caring for yourself. Yeah. I think it's initially I was, I think initially I was I was really still intent on being able to balance both worlds and make sure that they didn't seep into each other. And I think. Within I think yourself or within, within like the people you're dealing with within both actually like to you know to have really sort of specific time frames you know often I would do my own works during my holidays from work um, but essentially that just leads to you know not taking a holiday well to a crash you know like I think psychologically you end up um, you know as great as it is to be an artist and to be in service to artists, I think one of the things that we don't do to do well is to um, to find the time to actually just be a human being. Um, and essentially, you know, when you're also absorbing things because you love them yeah. um, in your holidays, when your proper holidays, and then you're still going and seeking out art. Um, it becomes kind of an addiction. (laughs) So, you know, so I guess I always feel, I mean, I feel now, and I feel like I've done this long enough, um, I feel now to be of service to 
to other artists, you have to take some time off to care for them. Um, and then if you are working within your own practice and to care for yourself, which is, you know, feeding your, your, your own creativity and um, <clears throat> feeding that sense of joy that you get from, you know, mm. from practicing, you that also sort of translates into finding methodologies of how you want to treat artists. Mm. Um, because, you know, like essentially I think what, you know, I'm very buoyed by the fact that there are a lot of curators um, in our sector who have got, who are, who are practice-based. Um, because essentially, you know, um, being part of the creative industries, you have to know how it feels to be in a process um, so that, you know, the administration, to, so that you could, you could just take the administration away from the artists that you're supporting. Um, because that's my expectation as an artist, working with an, a producer, or working with a curator, or working with, you know, yeah. um, with a structure. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I think, I think essentially we, we collectively as a sector, we, we have to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and, and find the time to, you know, like I, what I miss actually about working within a collective, like an inner shadow play collective who are based in Manila is that we'd always considered really important aspects of our lives, you know, whether it's about <clears throat> mourning the death of a friend or whether it's about celebrating, you know, the birth of, you know, your, your art family's child, you know, um, to find those really important kind of honoring and acknowledgements of people's lives is such an important aspect of what we do because, you know, it refreshes us and it actually allows us to, to, um, acknowledge that what we do is also a job Yes, and it is also, um, blood, sweat and tears. And it's also, you know, it's also just a part of life and, but life is much bigger than art. <laughs> and life is the only thing that art can pull from. Yes. So if you have no life, then your art's going to run out, right? That's right. What do you think is the... What do you... Uh, I guess, like, what is the questions that you currently are working on that are not answered for you? Oh, you know, I think my... Oh, my biggest question is always around how we could possibly be effective as artists, as curators, as, as institutions, be of service, be of real service to uncovering cultural trauma. For me, that's my biggest question at the moment. And I think particularly um, through the lens of having a job that, um, that I would say has, you know, has 60%, you know, um, explorations around First Nations culture and history. Um, I'm always, I, I feel like I'm always sort of immersed in those conversations. And, um, and it's interesting because I'm actually pulling out a lot of my memories of, you know, growing up in Sejuna and kind of tapping into a lot of those subtle um, realities of living with a, you know, with culture that is so alive <clears throat> and that is, you know, you know, particularly, you know, whether it's, it's the, 
um, existence of, of, of language or whether it's the survival of, um, you know, of, of people through really kind of traumatic periods and, and trying to sort of figure out how, I suppose, how we explore those things without ever um, oversimplifying mm. what those thematics are or what that experience is, you know. So, yeah, look, that's a, but I think that's a bigger question for the entire country to address, yeah, I like think. The world. Yeah. And is it, is it the efforts of the artist to take us towards... Um, I spoke recently with a guy called Jung mm. from a Nordic country, Schulberg, I think, and he was saying that, that it's like a... Art can be a fitness centre for empathy. mm where it's a safe space to practice being empathetic in an environment where you know you're not going to be torn to pieces <laughs> in that moment of vulnerability. Although, you know, there's also art that <laughs> just tears you, that just tears you to pieces. <laughs> but I think sometimes we're a little bit afraid of that too, you know, like I think sometimes, you know, and there has been periods in art that is about yeah. actually shaking you out of your comfort zones, like, you know, like, the period of theatre of cruelty, for example, was about really taking you outside of um, the privilege of being on the other side of the colonial construct. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Look, I well, think I think that about theatres in general. Mm. Like, um, is it a strange thing to decolonise a proscenium arch if it is? <laughs> A colonial form. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know what? I, you know, you could, I think we kind of end up sort of eating ourselves through these deconstructions. Absolutely. Um, There's this excellent thing that um, Sam Harris sometimes says about n- the left will inevitably eat itself because mm. it fractures and atomizes. Mm. And as much as he doesn't want the right to win, the right um, will win because of numbers and people are just <laughs> sign on board without saying yes and yes but I also mm. did slightly different in this way well the right the right will always be the right the right will always be right <laughs> you know I think that's that that's the yeah. thing isn't it I mean yeah, the, yeah. The, I think essentially well it's just like radic- extremism has power mm. Mm. Because it's so tied to... Well, it just is not nuanced. It's not bothering itself. Oh, absolutely. Complexity. Absolutely. It doesn't have to question itself. No, you're just a tidal wave. Yeah. Which is really fucking it's depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in, yeah, if everybody who is thinking and who is nuanced in, in their approach, uh, they end up being individuals mm. like, staring down the tidal wave. Mm. Because, which is why I think conversation can be so powerful. Mm. Because it's more communal. Well, I think equals commune equals communist. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something funny about that as well. But um, I guess what I was thinking, I was updating my website the other day and realizing that I just made a a show trying to detoxify masculinity and realize that actually I don't give a shit about masculinity. I'm just trying to detox. De- but how did you go? It. Oh, done. It's done. It's the, the problem is solved. Are you going to create your manifesto? No, I think, I think it's actually that I just don't want to buy into that any person is 
a, a villain or right. a criminal actually that that everybody's following a story and it's a story that they've inherited and maybe they've twisted or mm. that maybe it's been twisted before they've come to them or maybe they've been through such shit that it's become an extreme version of the story that they inherited mm. but it's a cultural story yeah for understanding the world and then validating and justifying your conduct in response to the world and that there are toxic aspects of each story mm. even survival stories even mm. But I think, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it just goes back to that, you know, very, you know, actually very kind of um, common conversation around, our, you know, the, the fact that we we just need to be able to look at the grey areas in, in, in a much more kind of um, rational and critical way, yeah. you know, like often... And, I, yeah, you're right. I think we're often kind of always relegated to really simplistic conversations around, around you know, right or wrong or, yeah. or evil versus good, yeah. and, you know. And, and or even that you're not allowed to be momentarily wrong yeah. while you work out what you think. Except for we know now through film that, you know, good and evil is like a really sucky movie. <laughs> it's you a know? sucky movie. It's know? not even And even Disney's, even Disney's bought into the whole kind of idea around the grey areas. So, you know. Okay. <laughs> I think there's like this argument for getting rid of the grey areas because having black and white makes things more legible. Mm. And if they're more legible, they're more quantifiable. Mm. And they're harder to um, mess up, basically. But it's already wrong it's already incorrect just because you've got like a whole pine forest plantation and you can count all the trees from a satellite image so it yeah. becomes more legible but then like all of the structures and layers of life that used to exist within that mm. are gone yeah it's like a it's an unfortunate thing um actually i do have a question how did tell how, me. how how did your work on masculinity go uh was it in I Darwin? Was it in Darwin? It was in Brisbane. Right. I would like it to be in Darwin, um, but I've had to. Sc- I've I keep chasing Darwin Festival with, and I keep getting disinterest. Right. <laughs> but I should have this in record. <laughs> uh, that everybody is under pressures to appear to be doing what people think that they should make sure that the people below them. Mm. should be appearing to be doing mm. and so whether you're doing it or not mm. but I do think that one of the most one of the biggest problems in Australia is the perpetuation of a toxic self-image yeah. um, across everything like, because that's what new waves of immigration inherit or are subjected to yeah. um, or both and then that's what the people who end up in power like if you're a shit boy you'll be a shit man unless something happens to you and so if we have some more sweet boys we're going to have some more sweet men (laughs) (laughs) even or we'll have some more sweet boys that don't have the power lust that will then allow space Mm. for people who are not straight white men to be in parliament like there's a I think I'm fighting the same fight as everybody else I hope which is that there's um but I also don't think that words are the answer because I think words pit ideas against each other. 
and in their quest for legibility become uh, kill the nuance and that's why I was dealing with it in, through dance yeah. and through a duet with Joshua Thompson and on a shipping container in work clothing because I think it is the the embodiment that is the most um, uh, what's the word uh, parasitic and pervasive mm. To be trapped in your own body. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it's like the all the all the signaling or or the or the kind of um, performance performance based on a costume, you know, which is <laughs> and 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 it's funny because you know it's also on the other side of that too that is also fetishized and um, you know um, particularly within gay culture and their fixation for you know construction workers <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but but you know like it's yeah you're right like there's but if that, there's some really interesting kind of like uh, middle areas that, that never kind of get discussed in the open very much which is like even even you know what we laugh about in terms of you know in terms of you know, gay culture preferencing the masculine, and and it's almost like it's now kind of seen as the um, <clears throat> as the standard of of how a man should act, because mm. now we're all kind of transforming into this to this drag of masculinity. You know, it's it's really yeah. odd. It's it's really strange. And, and I know, do think it's drag. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's it's all these kind of. And I think it used to have a place. Like we, the project, the show happens, but also a lot of the project happens outside of the show Mm -hmm. where we went and um, just did mini apprenticeships, like day or two days with old blokes Mm -hmm. that would have been pretty inarguably blokes (laughs) in, in like an archetype. And we just helped them with their work actually. And then went into the studio with that in our bodies or noticed how we would have to be physically in their environment to adapt to their environment. Mm. And so you suddenly realize that you are sitting really wide spread legged with like an elbow on like us now and like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or like knuckles on the other hand, instead of, instead of your hands. Oh God. Yeah, that does. I see that a lot actually. And I always thought it was full of shit. Yeah, Yeah. But when, then I realized that actually your hands are dirty from grease or from dirt or from picking up chains or whatever. And so to keep your clothing clean, you put the clean part so that you can rest the muscles that have been labored. It's choreography. It's really an adaptation (laughs) to that environment. But now they're like, uh, project managers who never lift anything heavier than their briefcase, who drive their ute to the work site in Melbourne CBD, who are also sitting like that because that's the way that a man sits. Uh, but that, what that, what that calcification of embodiment does mm. is signal that you're still uh, an Aussie battler, even yeah. though you're living a really comfortable middle-class life oh, post university degree. Absolutely. And, and it distances you because it takes up space and says that I can't share this space mm. and I'll fight for this space mm. because I think a lot of our validity and... Um, in communities had come from our skill as fighters, our skill as workers and our skill as fighters. Mm. And now if we lose that because Australia has been for many people so 
prosperous, mm. um, then not for everyone, but for a lot of people, then you're like, okay, well, if everything is disintegrating, then what do I hang my hat on? I just need something to hang my hat on. Yeah. And then you're like, well, I don't have to work as hard, but I still should perform that I'm working as hard. <laughs> I still should perform that I'm bad. The performance of labor. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, entirely ridiculous because Joshua and I then like wear our work clothes and do our dance labor yeah. on the shipping container. And then we're like, pretend laborers. <laughs> But we're also not. We're just doing the work of the dancer. But yeah. there's... But dance, I, dance is labor, isn't it? Dance is a labor situation, <laughs> as is sculpting. Yeah. Like if you're a marble sculptor, Jesus. Yeah. But I think, I think ultimately what doing the Blokes Project has taught me is that I'm, if I was to have a universal focus in any of my efforts, it is... Have you ever heard this saying, it's like a way to rip on a newspaper. It's like, is that true? Or did you read it in the, and then you insert the uh, newspaper name, like right, right. Who Magazine or Daily right. Telegraph or whatever it is that you're making fun of. Yeah. And so I feel like my, my efforts is to ask, do you really think that? Or have you never thought about whether you really think that? Mm-hmm. And it's just the first thought that, like it's the most easy to grab thought. Mm. No different from the impulse items at the checkout. Mm. It's like, actually, I want a pair, but the pairs are all the way over there and the Mars bars are right here. <laughs> and I really think that we go that way nearly all the time with with culture and language and terminology and embodiment and intimacy and vulnerability. Mm. And when do those structures get set up? And what is what is the trauma that you're parents or family whoever raised you is dealing with as you grow up around them yeah that then gets locked into your body Mm. and like why is your pet fat your pet is fat because of how you feed it because Mm. of your habits not because you have a like a genetic disadvantage in your family line that's saying that everybody has to be fat forever unless it's cute it's cute to make your pet fat (laughs) isn't that kind of abuse (laughs) but this is what I, I mean, maybe it's taken me a long time to realize, but I also was like, okay, fuck, everybody's telling me that there's this problem with me, the people who are me mm. and the people I come from. And so I'm going to have to work out what that is so that it can be approached and not just be a problem Yeah, forever be a problem. Because if you tell someone that they are a problem, that's it. It's mm. like, especially if they're stronger than you by power or force or number, then they will remain a problem because that's all that's left of their identity yeah. is to be a problem to you. But if, if somebody is burdened by something and you're like, Oh, you don't have to carry that. It's just put it down. Mm. It'll be fine. Then you'll have to tell them that for 10 or 20 or 30 years or generations or whatever, but eventually hopefully we move in the direction yeah. of change. Well, I think the problem I think for me in terms of, with any kind of um, movement within a conversation, within a discourse, I feel that, you know, we need to sort of reclaim the culture around discourse, you know, like at the moment it's so, it's so within the extremities, you know, like it is about kind of winning an argument or, or, um, you know, I suppose (laughs) erasing someone else, you know, and it's, it's, and, all sides, hey? oh, and and it's it's really and it's it's beca- it's encouraged by the facelessness of it too. Um, 
Um, so yeah, I wonder, you know, like I feel, I feel part of our evolution has to be kind of reclaiming that space to, to gather and have really kind of problematic conversations. Um, because even when you look at forums, mm. um, you know, you'll always get like a stupid question like, you guys look really tired or, which is not a question. Um, <laughs> it's not a question, it's true. <laughs> or, um. I really like the costume or I really like the lighting, you know, like I wonder, you know, I wonder part of that conversation about, you know, I suppose identity and about how we kind of define ourselves or how we shape ourselves based on, you know, our parents kind of own cultural traumas. Everyone's got them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I remember my mum telling me about a family in the district she grew up in that couldn't afford one of their children. Mm. And so like dressed him up to look as, um, like he's in Sunday best and just left him on the side of the road oh hoping that somebody um, and and also a boy that got adopted into their family because his parents had alcohol problems and couldn't raise him and that that was very common a generation mm. ago yeah um, across all these people that are now the enemies of the left yeah, yeah. Like yeah. everyone seems to have a fight and it doesn't serve us all the time to rate them on terms of uh, legitimacy, mm. if there's a struggle going on. Well, there is a, um, there's a hierarchy of suffering. Yeah, well, there's a hierarchy of intersectionality. Yeah. But that also feeds into the right, because the right remains a tidal wave, yeah. and the left becomes re-atomized. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also think, like, even reclaiming the word reclaim from Reclaim Australia, <laughs> so that we can reclaim intelligent discourse... <laughs> This is great. Uh, but I, I like Sydney for what I've come to notice is that I might disagree with you, but I'll still spend time with you. Mm. And I might not support your work, but I'll support you. Yeah. And I don't think that that is everywhere. And maybe it's just a survival mechanism of Sydney. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even a you-do-you you disassociation. Mm. It's... Um, it's it's somehow more than that and it's even like actually i don't understand your work but i'll support you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> or i can't pretend to have have had experiences that you have but i'll tell everybody that i think that you're doing the work that needs to be done and yeah there's a bleeding there there's there's a a horrible unfortunate default where you can if you know one thing that somebody thinks you can quite often guess the other stances that they take on yeah. other topics yeah that seems like that seems indicative of the systemic downfall of uh spending time with family that like spending time with your racist uncle for example <laughs> and you're like i'm sure everyone has a racist uncle and everyone still has to see them every now and again and it's like you you should be they should be exposed to you as much as you are exposed to them yeah yeah i hope yeah and there's you know i had a racist dad you know and it was you know and it was interesting to sort of negotiate um those things that you could never talk about yeah and we chose probably, I mean, you know, like a probably, if you I was brought home a partner of that race <laughs> and just right. seeing if the individual trumps the, yeah. the concept, I've noticed that. 
But it's funny, you know, like, and I think you're right in terms of, um, I mean, for me, that, that, the, um, the understanding, and it's certainly, you know, like, as a, as a person who was going through a gamut of experiences outside of, you know, the very sort of, you know, often very sort of sheltered kind of country town experience and, you know, I come back and, you know, my politics had changed and my kind of, um, my way of looking at the world had changed and I'd come back and have these kind of similar conversations to dad that I had, I had been having since I was 13 or 12 or, you know, and. Cause you know how to be. That yeah. Person, yeah. Except for, I, it, you know, except for I, I learned how to not be, um, accepting of those views by, but actually just stopping the conversations where they needed to stop, um, just so that we could kind of agree that we needed to be respectful of each other's space. Um, but at the same time, you know, the older I got, I also understood that, you know, a a white man growing in twenties, Australia, you know, um, late twenties, early thirties, um, would have had a tough time, particularly within, you know, particularly within the set of circumstances that he was in. And, and, you know, like, a possibly to look at, um, or to unpack, you know, why we ate rabbit all the time and, you know, um, and why he cooked the things that he cooked and, and all those things. If you're able to, to actually do your own research, because sometimes, you have to, because you can't get it out of the, you know, the mouth of the character. <laughs> um, and you you're know. right, it's in their habits and cultures and body and belief. Absolutely, because, because I wasn't going to accept that, you know, I was raised by a man who was, who was evil, because I, I never believed that he was. Um, and that's the thing. I think it's 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 consoling to people to agree that somebody is evil, yeah, and then just stop it at that. Yeah. Mm. So the so art can de evil people. <laughs> art and research. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because what if you do art without research? You just kind of do. No, then you do the wanker. <laughs> um what's what's how does the research happen i think i mean research again is in the widest kind of context i think and 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 widest sort of definitions is i find research is a is also yeah about conversation but I, i think community engagement in its most meaningful is also about research it's also about finding the pulse of where a community is um and then, you know, I think more importantly, research should be about, fine, particularly within dramaturgy, actually, it should be about all angles of one thematic, um, so that you're always, you're, you're always looking for the unexpected. Um, because there are some things that, you know, will, will often, I mean, if you don't do the research, I feel that you're not giving it a certain work it's weight um and you know unlike any good paper or any good essay it just needs to be backed up by pretty good Mm. understanding and learning um yeah and i think process 
is a way to ask the question, right? Yeah. That's what I found with the Blokes Project is that I had a question. Yeah. And it was like, it took six years to answer it for myself. And now I'm like, oh, okay, I've, the question will come up again, I'm sure. But for now, mm. I can go and do other things. Yeah, absolutely. But I couldn't answer that question by thinking about it or I couldn't go to somebody who had an answer that I would be satisfied by. Mm. Um, because that's not, I think the, the process of deep thought is somehow, um, making yourself each of these other people that think a different thing. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, deep thought can be sort of some, somehow sort of seen as slightly twee or, um, twee is in like you, a week you haven't taken or, a uh, or maybe sort of outdated or you know like perhaps it's seen as some, something kind of a little bit more sort of old school you know um but you know because increasingly like i'm getting into these conversations where you know you know artists are also saying but you know like uh, why you know why don't we just leave it to chance or why don't we just allow an image to to be what it is you know and or you know like my one one of my favorites is that you know my one of the best things that I like are the weird ones or the weird things that I can't explain, which is valid. Mm, but, but it's, but there's, <laughs> but for me, I think the, you know, my job is about unraveling what that statement is. Yeah. You know, why, why is it weird? Yeah. Why don't you understand it? Yeah. Why, why is it good if you don't understand it? All those things, you know, um, um, that, that we kind of, again, it's part of the conversation because sometimes when, you know, when people feel they're a little bit, um, confronted in a process because they can't answer something, it's not because I'm necessarily trying to make you uncomfortable. Mm. I'm just asking a question. I'm, I just, I'm also just, you know, doing my job, you know, like for me, yeah, for me, God, I, I just don't know. Like I've never, I've, I've never ever prescribed to the idea that there is an end to a question. No, that the question is a function. Yeah, yeah. I and I find that if some, if I am asking a question of my collaborator and they say that it feels right, that's an answer for me. That's mm. enough of an answer to give that thing time to live until it presents itself to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if that time to live is time on stage in front of a live audience and mm. we work it out on the third or fourth or fifth mm. night of the season, that that thing is is a thing but is not the relevant thing or the right thing or in mm. its form is not what needs to be there. Um, I'd probably be a little bit more annoying and keep pushing you why it feels yeah. right. Well, I would, <laughs> I would say it feels right because... there is an intuition that I'm relying on as the physical embodiment of this performance concept idea mm. understanding mm. where whatever words you would like me to put to it, I don't have yet, mm. but I'm relying on the same sensitivity that helps me make all the other, the other decisions that I have been able to put words to since. Mm. Um, and I also just don't want the moment of putting it in front of people to suddenly become the precious moment. I think yeah. at all moments it should have time to... And if it's unfinished, hopefully the audience is there to help you finish mm. 
that thing. They bounce back at you the thing that you're doing so that you know it. I look and I also recognize that there are works that get smarter and smarter the, lo- the, the older they are. Um, I'm not talking about canons here. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, you know, there are, you know, like a, you know, they don't want to sound like I'm biased because of present conversation or present company, but, you know, like Angela's work, mm. you know, Desert Crepes get smarter and smarter the more I, I see it or I, I think about it. Um, and I think... And I think those are the things too, is that sometimes, you know, that, that there's so many kind of layers of meaning that does um, end up, I suppose, creating a, a you know, an, an exoskeleton on a work that kind of just kind of starts building and makes it more interesting. And and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's world events that actually mm-hmm. end up making a work really important. You know, there are some really crappy plays from the 70s that mm. suddenly become very interesting yeah. you know because somehow they were prophetic or um or, or or were probably before their time yeah you know which is what blokes is <laughs> <laughs> no i think blokes is beyond i think it should have happened years ago um but i'm also asking the same question say with dance together mm. or even the big bounce that you helped me curate I'm yeah. like okay we all know we all think that we know what dance is we all think that we know what it is to come together mm. for a dance show discussion performance participation and what if what if the way that it's set up cleanses the palette of your expectation mm. so that you can enter it actually yeah and even i was i was reading about these restaurants that have always a complimentary entree that cleanses the palate so that when your meal comes to you they know that you're ready Mm. and i felt like that's what vanessa marion's um group therapy workshop at the beginning of the night was Mm. it was to enter into a dark space and be have it have your body given back to you yeah um, alongside other people so that then you're going through the evening with a bunch of people, not as a soloist yeah. and that you're, um, watching a dance show as a dancer, mm. as someone who's just danced regardless of level of training, but your body is watching a body rather mm. than your pedestrian or critical or scrolling or essayist mind watching mm. a body. And I think that there was that that was important to me and all secondarily for the discussion the panel that happened like Gideon told me don't have a panel in the middle of a party dance mm-hmm. night mm-hmm. Um, but there still was great party dancing afterwards mm-hmm. and I think it's there was a camaraderie of dancing together which led to the construct of the dance together project that I did which is the way that people used to dance together was by knowing the same dance yeah but we that we can't expect that within multiculturalism yeah. without like a lowest common denominator shuffle on a club floor. And that doesn't fully exorcise somebody's heritage or body or sensual desires or need for connection or need for disconnection. Mm. And what is the space that allows everything 
but I mean everything like doesn't clamp down everything to mm-hmm. <laughs> so and I, I think that all of those efforts are towards the same thing which is which is possibly saying a lot of what you think you think your your body is holding on to that yeah and if you give your body the space but not in esoteric terms like in physicalized trauma terms mm-hmm. in like domestic violence terms in um, substance abuse terms in uh, the way that we're choreographed to egress through a train station terms mm-hmm. like uh, speaking with a, a choreographer from Canada called Laurie Young and she was talking about how easy it is to fuck with everybody by just sitting down on the sidewalk you've immediately like people freak the fuck out Mm. and it's not an aggressive act Mm. and it's not a dangerous act but it's it's not in the rules (laughs) yeah and so there's something about I think there's something about that I don't like to come at the calcified argumentative mind and make a plea Mm. I'd rather, I'd rather like try and fire some mirror neurons or something, <laughs> or or at least at least when the conversation happens, we think that we're all, um, we're all people of similar value, and even if we don't have similar experience or something like that. Mm. So I don't think the Blocks Project is really about Blocks, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I think it's really about like <laughs> embodiment of shared cultural narrative mm. and the pushing the responsibility onto people to consider what they are going to perpetuate from what they have inherited. Mm. But God damn, that is a big task because mm. you just don't know what it is that you're perpetuating a narrative oh absolutely and it's you know like i think it's and it trans i mean that that kind of that physicality and that sense of um you know that that sense of drag or the, the you know the physicality of labor yeah is already kind of being transmitted or trans you know or 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 um passed on to other cultural bodies who are assuming the same positions and you know we talked a little bit about it before but um you know, I see it all the time here, you know, where it's, it's all these guys, you know, adapting the, you know, the iconic white male laborers stance or, you know, a way of moving through space. Um, you know, like, and even all the kind of the dress that's attached to it. Um, the Colorado's, which are spotless by the way. <laughs> the reason they used to look spotless is because so a mechanic would wear that's dark fat, blues right? like this. Yeah, a mechanic would wear dark blues because they would get in grease and oil, yeah. and it would be kind of blended in. Yeah, and someone working in dirt would wear khaki brown, yeah. and so you could still look quite clean if you if you were yeah. working hard. But um, these days, if you're in high vis and it's clean, you're just holding the sign. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, now it's all like really great jeans and color. You know, like um, the, the the tan colored boots. Oh, I've got a pair of those. And boots. then They're you really know, good. and then the vest, and then the chambray shirt underneath, and the 
hard hat <laughs> and it's pristine from yeah. freaking seven o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon so mm. you know it's, it's funny also walking past work sites in other countries where people are like they're having a smoker break and they're in a squat because you're in Vietnam or whatever. Yeah. And I'm waiting for that to come to the work sites here. Yeah. Um, or like spitting culture. Yeah. <laughs> you really can do like a Bushman's blow in Australia if you're out in the middle of a paddock, but you probably shouldn't spit in your no, work site. No, no. But then when I've been walking through some Asian countries, like you just spit anyway. anywhere yeah. all the time. Yeah. Or like through France, men just seem to urinate wherever they want. <laughs> how does, how is it in one country like ostracizable action yeah. and then so what i what i mean to say is they're all from my incessant thinking about this shit mm. they can't be ranked on more or less desirable alone mm. like the fact that there's the bravado taking up space manspread culture, but there's not the spitting culture mm. or the fact that there's far less women in our work sites than I noticed saying, um, Thailand, mm. like we really start imposing all of our cultural mindset. If we make a choice about which one is better or worse. Yeah. And that goes completely against any decolonizing efforts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, doesn't it? I don't know. I'd like to kind of see, you know, it would, it would be amazing to, to, to travel back in time. Well, I guess it would be jarring. You know, it would be, but you know, like in terms of construction as well, has been here for so long, you know, yeah. and I often wonder within the context of slavery and, you know, the, you know, the building of these empires in Egypt and Greece and, you know, mm. maybe it's always been like this. <laughs> but with better pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and air conditioning now. And air conditioning. I also, <laughs> it gives me solace to think that there was a time before and there'll be a time after. Mm. There was a time before Sydney and there'll be a time after Sydney. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that takes me out of getting too fixated on yeah. current, on like really buying into chanting from the top of my lungs, these current tribal identifiers of disgust. Mm. Like it's, it's almost like, it's not what you support these days. It's what you're disgusted in mm. that really tells other people who, which communities you belong to, but maybe that's not, doesn't feel nice to do. <laughs> um, usually mate, I wrap up by asking like, what's your biggest hope? For all of your efforts of like trying to find time to write and have conversations and then pushing back against institutions so that your artists don't have to do that and thinking about maintaining love for a person who was like going against everything you were learning but obviously was a product of their time not necessarily mm. a villain or a criminal or, mm -hmm. or evil like what is your biggest hope because that's full-time job Ooh, biggest hope um I don't think, I think my biggest hope within, within a much broader kind of idea about the future, because if hope is about the future, then I suppose I always look for how to define for myself, um, 
a role that I currently don't know. Mm. Um, like not a sausage roll. Not, not a sausage Vietnamese roll, not a roll. <laughs> <laughs> Closer to Vietnamese pork roll, actually. Very expensive now. They used to be like 350 I know. Like 10 bucks. <laughs> They're really good. I'd take one over a sausage roll. So, um, yeah. Trying to lighten it, and yeah. he's like, the genius was just about to come out, and I've just you were just fucked. I it. fucked it. <laughs> no, but um, but look, I, th- I think essentially, uh, I I always feel like I've I've kind of um, I've, I've I've walked into sort of positions that allowed me to be able to um, consolidate all my learning from, you know, from, from the previous years. And often, you know, like I, I feel like I've been really lucky to have been able to sort of fit into, to roles or mm. fit into positions. And, um, um, and I think essentially, I suppose my biggest hope is to remain open at the kind of, um, uh, the kind of reimagining that I need to be doing to be able to evolve into the next person that I want to be, or not so much the next person that I want to be, but I suppose the the, the kind of um, the kind of systems that I want to work in, you know. And and I, I always I always feel like there is, I mean, part of decolonizing oneself is also about being able to usurp. Um, <clears throat> any kind of trajectory, whether it's career trajectory or yeah, right, you know, because it's a capitalist construct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the assets. I mean, there are things that I romanticize, for example, that is so that's such opposing kind of trajectories to what I'm currently on, you know, and 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 it feels for me just as um, just as right. Mm-hmm to revert back to a simple life with a small cafe and, you know, in the middle of nowhere or, you know, a, a small land in Tasmania working on smaller projects. So, you know, like, for, so for me, it's about being open enough to, or to move to the Philippines, you know, um, and do something much, much more kind of invisible. Um, but for me, it's always been about the openness to be able to understand that, you yourself is enough, mm. you know, to enter whatever space you want to enter. Has that been active work for you? Yes and no. I think I always, you know, we, we, we revert back to the initial conversation, you know, like, and like any good works of art, you know, or, or any kind of work that you're proud of, you know, I think I've always trusted my instinct. Mm about what to do and 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 how to do it and i feel like you know that instinct is becoming even far more precise about setting those conditions for myself and setting those um pathways for myself that allows me to sort of move to the next phase or indeed continue with whatever i'm doing now you know but Mm. but for me, integrity has always been the most important part of the equation, that you you go into situations feeling less compromised. And I say less compromised because we're all compromised <laughs> mm. um, by the kind of bigger structures that you're working with. So, you know, like I, I, I really feel like 
part of our work as artists, as arts workers, is having enough kind of gener generosity to also understand when you are no longer effective. Um, and to, to be generous enough to, to either move on or to, um, or to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like I've always felt like I've, I've, you know, I've, you know, part of the business of, of being an artist and being an arts worker is about, um, uh, you know, this, this gradual kind of redefinition of, of what it is that we do. And, and when you've resolved that with your current work or with your current project, then you should be content and move on to the next or else things become too elastic <laughs> and you become part of the problem. Yeah. Um, and I'm a, yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. Like, I feel like, you know, we're, you know, if we're supposed to be forces of um, inspiration, then we have to remain inspired. Mm. Is that like a, do you have that tattooed somewhere? Uh, on my forehead. <laughs> I've got foundation over it at the moment, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there something like that, like an epiphany that you want to finish on? Or? An epiphany? <laughs> yeah, no pressure. I just want you to blow oh, into mine. Look, or I just something you try and remind yourself of. I always, you know, like there is something that I always revert back, of late especially. Um, and I was, you know, mourning the death of a friend. Um, and, a, and a, you know, a long-term collaborator with, you know, actually Don Solobaiba. And I just sort of rewarded myself after his funeral and went to, um, went to a part of the Philippines that I have never been to. Mm. Um, it's kind of volcanic land and it's really relatively still pristine considering it's in the northern side of the Philippines because a lot of the pristine places tend, tend to be in the south. Um, and then I just kind of, um, I just decided to organize with the hotel like an evening boat ride to this river because everyone talks about these fireflies. Mm. And um, yeah, I just sort of took, <laughs> took that ride to the river and um, and then it was really unpromising because it was so dark and I just couldn't see anything. But then we came to this bend and suddenly you had these like four trees that was, that had like millions of colonies of fireflies that reflected against the black river. And it just became this infinite space of, of stars and, you know, fireflies and, you know, and, and not knowing where the edge of, um, our world was and it was one of those moments where you know I really felt like I, I had kind of completed my conversation with my friend who had just passed away and it was this kind of really beautiful moment where I, I felt like I was in direct contact with him mm. but for me I suppose what that moment means is that um, it just needs to be that simple that the you know that the structures that we, we often kind of get so bogged down around are actually structures that can still be negotiated and broken and um, usurped and reimagined and redesigned and you know like so I I, I feel like this <clears throat> this whole idea of us defining what geography is or what you know what what borders are um, 
it's all up for negotiations. And I don't mean that within a, you know, within the arrogance of taking over another country. I just mean in that kind of, <laughs> I just mean it within a kind of much more sort of, you know, poetic and also within, a, within, within the constructs of our world, which is, you know, which is often the, the moment I go back to when I feel like systems are really constricting me or, or, um, stopping me from functioning. Mm. Yeah, it feels like geographic borders are a way for people with best intentions to say, this is what I'm responsible for. Yeah. And worst intentions to say, this is now an asset of mine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then systems, I feel like systems that lock me down are like knowing that when I park somewhere, I've got two hours. Yeah. And like, well... It's a pretty rough way to live. What if something is happening that is mm. more important? But then the other system of knowing that if I get hurt, I can go to a hospital and that there are trained nurses and doctors who are going to look after me, that's, that's a system then that liberates. Yeah, absolutely. And that I can't ever take for granted because it's not that, like, it's really a good life for mm. a nurse usually. Mm. <laughs> but... This, the system that they're being forced into this work means that they're there for other people, which is, yeah, they're interesting to think about. Also because I just don't have a lot of faith in individuals' interest, actually, in these conversations oh, most of the time. Absolutely. People will just go with the system. Yeah. And if the system is as close as it can be to considering as many people as it can, then... Which I guess that's our job, right? Yeah, absolutely. Don't, not to fight people, just to fight the system. <laughs> <laughs> that's my tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't rock the boat. Yeah. <laughs> rock the boat, but... Um, yeah, rock the boat with the right people. Right? Fight the system, not the people. Yeah, that's right. Because it feels really... It can feel really... What's the word? Like, uh, justified to mm. get into a fight. But actually, that's like a f just, yeah, it's like a pissing contest, really. Oh, look, absolutely. You know, like, I think I've, sometimes people probably think that I'm way too chilled, you know. But in the end of the day, like, I'm not going to have my emotional, my, my emotions or my kind of, um, my sense of peace with yeah. where I'm at yeah. be compromised by other people's panic, other people's kind of sense of, not being able to accept, not being able to control things. And, and for me, you know, like it's, it's one of the things that I've always felt like has become a major part of my survival through the arts has been the fact that I find equilibrium in, in being in that moment so that you're able to then critically look at how to solve problems yeah. As they're happening, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm not a panicker. I don't get angry very often. I, I, I think it has to be, it's part of, it's part of your evolution as a human being. Like you have to yeah. be so much more able to live a life with grace. <laughs> <laughs> 
I meant. <laughs> and that comes, and that comes from dance. <laughs> that comes from working with you, people like you, and uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, of course. Grace and everyone from QL too. Well, grace know. is another way to say integrity, really, isn't it? Hey, grace. Being graceful is another way to say to have integrity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and generally, people I really admire are those who conduct their lives mm. with so much grace and, mm. um, and and just a sense of not not being beyond kind of reproach. <laughs> not beyond reproach, I mean, that's a little bit, you know, fucking omnipresent, but, um, but just beyond being ruffled by, by small things, you know. Mm. Yeah, and that they're value is not tied to that moment of retaining power in that oh. situation and if they like you're saying that you maintain enough perspective that you see if you're the problem in the situation you even take yourself out of the situation oh absolutely mm. i think the thing the people who have always admired are the people who have been able to say who have come across as at any given point i can walk away from this and totally untethered by by a sense of, um, what do you go with, you know, survival through self-interest, yeah, losing power, yeah, I guess, thanks, Pastor, <laughs> thank you, we finally got it done, <laughs> <laughs>